a great crowd. I'm very excited to have Mike Edwards here to launch this series with us. I'm with the Policy Communications Department of the City of Knoxville and lead the city's energy and sustainability initiatives. We've got a couple great programs going on with respect to that initiative right now, including a full-scale energy audit of all the city's facilities and our, and our Solar America Cities initiative. And if anybody would like more information about what we've got going on, please come up and talk to me or Aaron Burns, who's in the back there after, after the program. But right now, it's my great pleasure to introduce my friend Mike Edwards, who uh, very kindly agreed to, to, to help us kick off this series. And as you all probably know, Mike is the president and CEO of the Knoxville Chamber and the Development Corporation of Knox County. And he's been the CEO of the Chamber since 2002. Education is a, is a big area of interest for Mike. And he's, he serves on the Education Committee of the US Chamber of Commerce. He's a member of the Board of Directors of the Tennessee Business Roundtable and the Public School Forum and the Board of Trustees for the Great Schools Partnership. Um, and he's also a regular speaker at civic and business organizations about the importance of improving education for our continued economic well-being. And that was one of the reasons why we turned to Mike to, um, to head this up for us. So uh, under his leadership also, the Chamber and other regional partners have developed a comprehensive five-year economic development initiative known as Innovation Valley Inc. Um, and, and they are uh, recruiting and retaining and expanding business growth in the region with a focus on technology-led economic development with a particular interest right now in clean energy, energy technology. Um, so with that, I will I'll let him get us started. Look around the room and see if you see Bob Becker here anywhere. Because he's the one who called me and told me to do this. <laughs> And it was to lead a discussion. And I said, well, you know, I can walk around like Donahue and stuff. Actually, one occurred to me, I actually got to read the book. I went scurrying around trying to find the cliff notes. They don't do that anymore. <laughs> I went over to my fraternity house. They didn't know me. They don't have those filing cabinets anymore. And I figured, well, you know, after being out of college about a little less 40 years I ought to really read a book now and then. So I hunkered down and read it. Actually, I'd read the other two Tom Friedman books, and uh, one that doesn't get that much play uh, is the uh, Alexis and the Olive Tree, and it's pretty, uh, it's pretty compelling as well. They're all of them very informative. Anyway, I don't know how to do this. Um, so here is my thought. If you look at this book, I mean, when you go through this book, it's, a, it's as much a textbook. I mean, they, they, there's so much information in it. Um, it's certainly compelling, but I had to kind of figure out where I would focus where I, the, the main point, I think, of the book, knowing that you all are probably going to have other points I'm going to naturally assume that everybody's read this book. I know you didn't do the cliff notes because there aren't any. You know, when I went through the first part of it, I'd had, I had, you know, I'm, all of us are, have shifted toward green. I can, it, conservatives, except for Rush Limbaugh, have shifted toward green. Uh, it's a matter, though, more of a feeling that we smell a rat in a lot of ways. Uh, 
but we really don't have a clear understanding of exactly what the scope is and what the 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 imminent consequences are and so I think I'm not going to go into the science uh, you've read it you know it uh, I was really blown away by the geopol I mean by the uh, petropolitics I was blown away by oil poverty I had never really thought through that the whole oil al-Qaeda al deal, I mean, it's, uh, and it's pretty darn simple to follow and it's pretty hard to dispute. So I guess the point is where I was, all of that got me to the point of when I got through that part of the book, I said, well, you know, there's not going to be any argument there. I'm, you know, you can argue it, but it, you're arguing it superficially. So my mind went to, all right, now what are you going to do about it? We know it. Uh, he lays out an incredible uh, argument. And of the, the, the political stability and the climate change and the biodiversity loss and the, the energy poverty and the, whole, uh, the global warming, the whole deal, any one of those is, is going to kill us. But if you put all five of them together in all their subsets, uh, pretty darn good reason to, 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 to kind of wonder what's going on and what we have. It, here's what he says. And, and, and again, it's coming from my perspective. I'm, I'm a chamber guy. I'm a, I'm a development guy. Basically, what he's saying is people are not going to do what is not in their best interest. You're not going to get China to do good, although there's, there's instances in China where they're doing good, but they're overall not going to do something that's going to create short-term poverty in which people are going to run the risk of tossing them all out of office, or in India, or in Brazil, or in fill in the blank, and you probably can think about it it probably applies to the United States. So what he says is that we got to make it to where it works for them. That it, it is cheaper with renewable fuel and renewable or renewable energy than it is to use fossil fuels. We have to figure out a way to make it work for them and show them. Which means we have to figure out through innovation and research how to make solar panels or whatever the, the next generation or the next 14th generation of solar or wind or oceans flowing or whatever it is to transfer into a economic model that is preferable to oil, coal, natural gas, whatever. What he's saying also is that in order for us to innovate this thing all the way from innovation and research all the way to the marketplace, and I live this, it, 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 it kind of cleared up some questions I've had as to the process of this. 
there's no way to avoid that the national labs, and then we got one at Oak Ridge, and research universities are going to have to take this research to the point that it is on the downside or the backside of that learning curve. If we expect it to happen in industry before the market's there, it's not going to happen. The economics are there, everybody's still moving. They got to make a profit today, so they're still going to be loaded into the fossil fuels. We have to figure out a way to take the, the innovation to the downside, and at that point, the marketplace, the private enterprise, can figure out a way to take that and develop competitively among themselves how to move that product into a, a product that can be marketed and that can be uh, uh, that they can get their money back out of their part of the research and to move it into the marketplace aggressively. The thing that fascinated me about this book is every time he makes a point and I agree with it, then he goes, well, there, but then therefore. The next therefore is you're not going to be able to create this market solely with own innovation, taking it to the point of the marketplace picking up on the downside. It's going to require a carrot and a stick. Uh, uh, the stick being taxes on fossil fuels and a carrot on, and, and that includes tariffs on imports of, of products that have been derived from fossil fuel and incentives based on renewable energy. Uh, you're going to have to tax my SUV and you're going to have to incentivize someone to buy a hybrid car. Now, that is a major political decision. Germany apparently has done a pretty neat job at it. A lot of folks have done it. The dilemma is we know that the world is based on petrol politics, based on all the major areas that, that we're heading for a calamity. Unknown, but there's still a date certain out there. We just don't know when it is. We're upside down. The conundrum is, in order to fix it, politically we have to take Americans in the world and turn them upside down in their economics and their way of life and their comfort zone. We have to change everything that they have become dear to in order to make that switch, in order to create the market for these new products and to make the, the fossil fuels market uncompetitive, non-competitive, whatever that. That's a political nightmare. If you look at, and that, you know, he talks about wanting to be China for a day and then flip immediately to the U, be, go back to being in the U.S. the next day. Getting us to that point of understanding that we have to do that out of our very survival in a democratic republic is going to be very tough. It doesn't really happen, actually. In China, they can, they can type out a memo and it's 
enforce. Now, the problem, he makes a good point. In China, the next day, they're not going to enforce it. They don't have the, the infrastructure to enforce it. If it becomes law here, it's enforced by every agency and court and everything else. So, but it's, that's almost just rhetorical because we're not going to be with China for one day. So it's sort of like, all right, how are we going to get there? You know, he, he'll say things that if, if the right things to do are the obvious to people who know the very most about energy business, then why can't we put them in place? If we know Social Security is going to tank and that it's got to happen, why can't we put it in place? If we know fill in the blank of all the major institutions in the United States, why can't we put it in play? Um, Mendelbaum, I should have looked up who he is, he quotes them all through this thing, but he says, not in response to this, but he says, people do, people are not going to change when we tell them they need to change. They're going to change when they tell themselves they must. It gets back to the point that we are going to do what's in our best self-interest. So if we're going to fix this thing, we've got to take it to the point where it is in everybody's self-interest. And unfortunately, it can't be based on purely a moral or an ethical decision. If it was that, public education would be rocking and rolling 80 years ago. Here, you know, we've gone green, we've gone more green, and, and I think everyone in here, or anybody out in that hall, or in Mall or wherever, no, but there's still that propensity for a willful suspension of disbelief to ignore the world science and to find yourself agreeing with some talk show, some radio talk show host. It's what we would want to hear in a simple, in a simple world. So I'm sitting here in my mind, how are you going to get a citizenry? You know, you go back to what Jefferson said. He said that a democracy can only, a self-governing society can only survive if you have an educated and enlightened citizenry. I think we're about to really understand what that all means. Um, <laughs> because in order for folks to do what they're going to have to do, it's, a, it's public, you know, our electeds do, you know, they're, they're looking for the public sentiment. And, and so American people, if they're going to lead the world and show the way, which means we have to put it in place first and demonstrate how it works economically, how it works functionally. We're going to have to develop the systems, which means we're going to have to develop those policies which are going to be painful. They're going to have to understand why to do it. We are, they are. We're going to have to understand that what the consequences are if we don't do it. And what the consequences are if we do do it. You know, I got so tired of listening to 
him talk about Berkeley Lab, that uh, I'm, I'm going to make sure Tom Mason gets him down to Oak Ridge. Uh, Oak Ridge has, is, is, without question, computation leader, without, with, without peer, which means they can model anything that could never be modeled in the past. They can model it now, and every two years, they double the, the computing capacity of the computer. Every two years, the ability to model. They are without peer, the leader in nanotechnology, and they were without peer, the leader in bioscience. Uh, that puts us, along with UT, which has an incredible, whether we recognize it or not, is a incredible research institute, us, in, and we all know this, we've always said, you know, we got Oak Ridge here, we got, you know, in the book when it talks about green jobs, and in my mind I've always thought about green jobs as being uh, high-tech jobs that are, are doing this innovation and stuff, and he makes a very good point. Uh, green jobs are going to replace jobs that no longer exist in the marketplace today that can be filled by people who have a certain level of skill set that will never go away, can never be outsourced. And he's talking about folks who, who will actually go in and, in, and not only weatherize homes and buildings, it's, yeah, but whether I, uh, install uh, various forms of electronics to, uh, to put it, make it work with the smart grid. And things. Yeah, it, it's, it's. In other words, we're in a position here, if I can do my job right, to convince people, at least in this microcosm, that the, we're in a position to grow jobs in this downturn far better than most locations throughout the country. Those are jobs that are going to be growing over the next, we're not gonna make cars in this country. Cars gone. We may make parts and you know, but overall the car industry is gone by the way of the Chiricahua. So we're gonna to have to figure out, well, I mean, if I'm sitting there in St. Louis, I'm, I don't have this option. We're sitting here ready, and, and so are both the major institutions. It's not by, you know, it, DuPont has located to run the switchgrass plant in Vinor, the solar plants in, uh, in Clarksville and in uh, Cleveland, Tennessee, are not here necessarily by, they're not ready to go to market. They have to, they have to improve their product so much in order to be competitive, not with each other, but with oil. That's why they're here. So it, this green thing could be the golden ring for us if we pay attention to it. One of the things he said was that democracies, one of the weakness in democracy is that it can't make changes effectively and quickly, and I wrote it down, but I'm going to, in peacetime. Um, and he's really right. I mean, we did a whole lot starting December the 8th after Pearl Harbor. I mean, we, everything changed. Phone call went into General Motors and say, stop the cars, I want tanks. No argument, of course, they got paid for those tanks, but uh, you can move a society when they're in threat and their very existence 
literally survival is at, is at great risk. Otherwise, if you don't really feel it and you don't really have that sense of threat, you're, it's going to go away. It's just you can't move easily. Then I got to thinking, he wrote this book really before the economic crash. I mean, we were, I don't know when he actually went to publication, but there might have been a couple of banks back in this time last year, but the truth is he hadn't seen any of this. Right now, you have all of the major institutions broken. You've got healthcare broken. Education is broken. Manufacturing, whether it's cars or any durable goods, uh, financial institutions broken. And broken means they have to be rebuilt. They're going to have to be rebuilt from the ground up, and we're going to be in a whole bunch of hurt while all that happens. So we're already going to go through a boatload of pain anyway. We're already doling out about in terms of trillions of dollars. So really now's a pretty darn good time to say we're at war and let's take this cash that we would have never had in a million years and rebuild these institutions to where they work right and including the energy institution. Um, now how that plays out is anybody's guess. And, and how many people, when you read this, was depressed? <laughs> well, when I, when I finished it, uh, I set it down. My wife and I speak uh, in obscure movie quotes, and uh, we, I set it down, I looked over at her, and uh, if you all have seen The Princess Bride, Carol Kane, you know, has have fun storming the castle, and she turns to him and says, you think they got a chance? And he says, they'll take a miracle. That's <laughs> uh, why I kind of felt he was going to take a miracle. She, she pointed out that Jim Lovell had said that uh, when, you know, Gemini and Apollo astronaut, that, that his quote out of his book, that we live in a time where man had has walked on the moon, and it wasn't a miracle, we just decided to go. We have the human capacity, and clearly we have the intellect to fix very complex problems. The most ominous for me statement, which comes in a question, which I'm going to end with, was, the fundamental question is that, can democracy survive complexity? We've never really had to answer. We never had to answer that. Chances are, including energy, certainly at the top, but if you look at all the major institutions that are in total failure and why they're in failure, and on top of that, a planet that is heading to nightmare, we're probably going to find the answer to that question pretty sooner than we, we may like. But that's the fundamental question. Can a democracy survive complexity? That's the end of my book report. I didn't put in there 
and it held my attention to the end, which I think I put in every one of mine in high school. So it was a great story, and I love it, and it held my attention till the end. <laughs> So outside of that, what do y'all think? Well, the thing that I thought he was talking about the most is you have to change the policies and the incentives to create a market. Right. So how are you going to do that? It, Maybe China can do it pretty yourself. cool. Huh? Maybe you run for election yourself. You all right. I run, I run for election. And first of all, I, I'm going to say... If elected, I'm going to tax the socks off of any power you get or fuel that is fossil uh, derived, and I'm going to maybe give you, even though the market's not there yet, a break on renewable fuel. I think you're going to vote for me, and maybe some numbers in this room are going to vote for me. I'm going to get beat like a grind at the, at the, at the ballot box. And if I were to try to do that, I would not be able to get the others to go along with it because they're going to get beat like a drum. The only way to do what you're saying is that we have to be multiplied by the to the majority of the voting electorate at a time that they don't really absorb a whole lot of complex technical information. Yeah, that's um, your point about, or I guess it's Thomas Jefferson's point, <laughs> um, which really stuck with me. And I guess one question is, so, so what, you know, do you take away as, as the, the role of the media and all this, and, and it, it actually needs to change to, to some extent? I mean, the, if part of the problem here is communicating complexity to the general public, you know, it's sort of the media has the voice to do that, but, but of course their own business incentives are sort of pushing them in the opposite direction right now towards simplification. So, you know, is there, do you see that there's a way to kind of make them work to solve this problem and still remain, um, you know, journalists rather than educators? And there's a blurry line there, but... No, I... By the way, in my notes, I had media as one of the institutions that's broken. Uh, local news, it, it, there's no advertising anymore. So you know that the strain is the lifeblood of the media, electronic and other ones. Um, you know, the, Friedman says that he really thinks that every time the weatherman gives us the, the weather that he, ought to point, he or she ought to point out that you know, it wasn't this hot four years ago, and I wonder what the heck's causing that type of stuff, and, and continue to reinforce it that way. Um, here's, I really think, the big, big problem. And if anybody thought I wasn't going to get back to this, y'all are just silly as I'll get it. <laughs> we have produced a population of people who cannot think critically. We have allowed them to get through with low, not only basic knowledge, but basic skills, and skills being reasoning and uh, problem solving. So it's hard for them to think through, really, and sort through 
the noise from really the facts. And, and it's not just the, the ones that you're probably conjuring up. My, my best friend is a plastic surgeon. He'll tell me he's as highly trained as an astronaut. And, you know, this stuff just glazed over to him. So it's, it, if we're going, it, we have to spend more time in getting a population with the skill sets to think and reason. Uh, and then maybe the media can speak to them as grown-ups, and you know, and they will get it. Otherwise, we're selling Tide soap, and you got to, you just got to hit them with it a hundred times a day, and then those, the, the needle will start to move. I guess, in some respects, I'm a little bit more optimistic. Um, I mean, I, I, I do agree with you that, that we could have maybe a better educated uh, citizenry, but I, I mean, if, if you think back 20, 30 years ago, people that were recycling back then were thought of as oddball tree huggers, and, and now it's, it's a little more mainstream. I mean, I, I think that, that maybe the media and, and maybe here in this room, I mean, over time, I think that this message might kind of get out and sway some, some views on the out. How, how do you feel about that? Always taking the negative view, <laughs> which is ought to be some concern of yours from a chamber guy, but <laughs> let's say that we move the needle in the next 30 years, the same rate that we moved from moving people. What is it, 2050, the CO2, it hits the magic double amount, and at that point, we really are looking for that spaceship to come and beam us, you know, it, it's, we don't have that time was the part that, you know, they're, they're cutting out a, in Indonesia uh, forest the size of Maryland every year. Well, I dang, I mean, you know, really, we don't we don't have that kind of time. We, we're really going to have to make this so important to people that not from and it's going to have to be just good old greed. You're going to have to make this thing so valuable to them that they would never go back and not recycle because it costs too much just to throw stuff away. It, it, it's got to go to there and it's got to go there fairly fast if I'm reading. Uh, I, I guess people can... It's to incentivize policy makers to change the policies. And that's the difficult point. That's the sticking point. That's the sticking point. He makes a good point. Politics, politics operates in two-year cycles. So, mm -hmm. uh, what combination of carrot and stick would move you from your SUV to a hybrid? Yeah, I, you know my. Here's my deal: is I'm. One thing I've got to figure out, I got to go take the the SUV and crush it, because if I trade it in, just some other slob's going to be driving my SUV, it's, and and I've not reduce that. The other thing is, and it just the way I have, I, I own a John boat and I got to figure out how a hybrid pulls a John boat. Now, okay, maybe I ought to get, you know, I ought to get over that, but 
truth, truth, but, 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 the, but, you know, I could probably get taxed out of my comfort zone and live without that John boat. Do you think it'll be higher gas taxes? I think you got to have higher. You're going to have to have higher gas tax just to replace the the, the road trust fund. I mean, just say it, but you know, you're not, but. Mike, it seems to me the biggest problem is that ultimately this comes down to changing our individual personal lifestyles dramatically. Um, it kind of reminds me as a biologist of what happens when a big animal threatens a small animal. The small animal all of a sudden finds a really just sort of like don't even look in that direction. And so how do you, other than getting institutions to beat us with a stick, how do you see what, what mechanisms exist for people to dramatically change their lifestyles? Moral persuasion has, unfortunately, a very limited effect. I mean, I... I it certainly does on people in this room. It certainly does on a good, I really do not believe moral persuasion will change public policy and there has to be something of a threat that is imminent and that they readily recognize for two reasons. One, they do not want to give up their John boat and they don't want to, they hate change. I mean, we're kind of, you know. Well, it's like people change during World War II because they made it a national concern to conserve. I mean, because they were hearing that all the time. There was this threat of war. It got people to change their thinking, change their behavior. Well, the threat happened. It, that, remember, we were isolationists. We, you know, we had some people that were stay out and we were for the German you know, then the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor, and then we started, you know, the Victory Gardens and all that stuff. And by, none of that happened prior to the Japanese bombing Pearl Harbor. I mean, you know, we, we were happy as a duck and ready to just stay out of the whole thing. I'm wondering, but I agree with you that people aren't going to think this through and, and see all that and agree to make the sacrifice and what happened logically. I think where change comes from is leadership inspires. So if we can have the right leadership in place that inspires people with a vision, a, a positive vision, and optimism, because, because I think there are two things. One, you can make it so pessimistic that we all give up. And, and I share your pessimism in the sense I'm not going to be right. But that, that it's not worth trying. Or you can make it so comfortable that nobody thinks there's really a threat. I agree with that. But I think in the end, it has to be something that pulls people forward through their resistance. And that is at a, not a rational level, it's at an emotional level. I, first of all, please don't, my pessimism is, I'm also saying we don't have a choice but to do this. It is like, if we think this is going to happen, it's not, unless, unless we find leaders and we make sure that the other side doesn't kill them. And, and, and then 
make sure we support those leaders. And I think those leaders are going to come forward as more people understand this. Um, there are states, and certainly there are countries abroad that, that really are f further down the road, and they had to take some hits. Some folks are going to have to be one-termers, but if we find leaders and they can inspire and they can, and they can uh, you know, leading is leading. You know, that's where you got people, you, you're able to get people to follow you. That's it. I mean, that's, that's pretty much where we're at. And if we don't do it, you know, if you look at this stimulus package, I've heard a lot of people yak about, well, they're, they're going to insulate a lot of houses. Well, I, dang, now I read this book and I'm thinking, well, those are a whole lot of jobs that will eminently go in there that are probably people who are displaced that's going to reduce CO2 emissions. Uh, it is a lot of money, but it probably will take a lot of money to reduce. So I'm thinking, you know, maybe that has been fairly well thought out, and old Rush may be full of it. I'm sorry, ma'am. Yeah, but it, here's something else term limits do is that because of the seniority, uh, it's going to take someone who's been there long enough to actually get things done. It's a, it, it's a two-edged sword. If, if they come in, they're gone, they, they won't reach that critical chairmanship that is the gatekeeper of all things. Mike, I had a class last night up on the deck on top of this building. Um, from 7 o'clock to 9 o'clock. Watch the sun go down, it's up around the tree road, it's gorgeous. Um, and you look out over the rooftops, all this white foam insulated rooftops. It strikes me that just on a, a local personal level, if we put green roofs on those, which are basically just like square yard square trays, four or six inches deep or something, cut down the heating bill, cut down the runoff of water to KUV. And if I had visitors to Knoxville, it's the first place I'd look at over a few greeners and trees or something. This is something that can be done in a positive way to sort of inspire people and image something anyway, and it's not very expensive. And they're great roofs. They they outlast the normal twenty year roof. Because they don't get the ultra violence. The Angus, if you need to get something, just pick up a tray and move. Uh, I, I agree with you that moral suasion won't do it, but perhaps rational self interest might. Uh, and you mentioned we, we do it in the media and so forth. We seem not to be able to think that clearly anymore. Uh, I'd like to recommend a book I'm reading by Susan Jackie called The Age of American. Reason. Uh, she makes the, the point, uh, A, that our language has been debased to the point that it's just difficult to think clearly. It's sort of just go to doorways to write it down. Uh, and secondly, that if we have a culture that's developed in the last 30, 40 years of not just anti intellectualism, but anti reason, you know, we, we think everything's opinion rather than a thing based on facts. Someone in the last administration talked about the reality-based. Well, you know, we, we, 
what you're saying is we're going to rudely re-hit this reality-based reason whether we want to be or not. So perhaps we could redefine that as a good thing. You know, really no kidding. We got all of our major institutions down on the floor and they're going to have to be rebuilt from the ground up. Banking, the whole, so why don't we rebuild this? It, it, two years ago you go and say, all right, I need, we got all these things that are broken, they haven't fallen apart, but it's going to take two trillion dollars to go fix them. It ain't going to ever happen, but now we got two trillion dollars and we got everything broken on the floor, so why not rebuild this? One point about the media, if the media was the hammer, the effect of oil that is driving enemy, then and poverty, which creates chaos and threats, and 23 countries that their major export is oil, none of them are democracies, and the the there's a to the the, the more the more the more oil that is that you export, the less individual freedoms that country affords. Yes, ma'am. I think you're onto something there with really reframing maybe what it is to be patriotic in this country. I think that we've had that defined differently over the years, but if we can define patriotism, and maybe with the economic downturn, patriotism is being thrifty, is being careful with your money, is saving on um, your electricity, turning off lights, saving on driving as many places. I, I really think it's about reframing you know, what it is to be a patriotic American. I do too. In fact, there's a bank, and I don't know who it is and probably shouldn't say if I did, but there's a bank who has their whole new commercials out there is going back to the basics. and I, you know, their, re, their, their research has said people are ready to go there. So it's... And I think saving And I was sat trying to put myself in the in the thought process of her audience, and I wonder how many of them go, God, that was great, that was moving. R.S. Press on, and just you know. Yeah. I think a lot of the lifestyle changes that we all have occurring to us uh, are associated with some nostalgia as a more simple way of living, and and are actually attractive when we think of ways of living. And they could be not only made more possible, but more attractive if the infrastructure were put back in place that we let disappear and crumble sidewalks, mass transit, denser urban design. China, in their economic package, is building mass transit. Bastard. All right. What? Here, here's sort of why this won't work because I thought of it. But if Oak Ridge has to design in their, they have on their plate to do, they have to model, which means design, the new smart grid. Well, right over here is DBA, right here 
is KUB. What if we were to take as the Innovation Valley, which is five counties, and say we want to have a part of that CO2, whatever that number that we decide ought to be, whether it has to do with and, and putting in a micro smart grid so that we're loading at night and we're cutting off at the peak times, that we are recycling, that we're, we're, we're requiring our building codes have to be at a certain level and the products have to be of certain type and, and go through and just say, if, if it's going to take the United States to figure out and lead the world and it's going to take national labs and research to get us to that point where the, the products can be taken over by the DuPonts like they did with SwitchGrade, why not use us as the lab and build the entire soup to nuts uh, green? And then it's certainly at a scale level. It's certainly at a model that should be plopped up here, taken to Oklahoma, and set right down. Because it's five counties. Recycling gets us away from a personal responsibility to consume a lot less. Depends on if you're having to pay for stuff more that was produced with fossil fuels. But it's still. Ultimately, it comes down to personal changes in their lifestyle. How many people are spending less money today than they were six months ago? Uh, our personal lifestyle has changed, right? Not much. Well, but I mean, you know, there's going to be a lot less vacations. There's going to be a lot less haircut. I know because I'm you know, hearing from the companies. It's less money. That's a change in lifestyle that we didn't choose. I think it's a wrap, okay? Thank you all.